Okay, I'll call the, the second case today is State v. Sanders, and so if the appellant is ready, we'll hear from you. And just let me know if you want to reserve any time. Good afternoon, and may it please the court. Stephen Beta from Cranfield, Sumner, and Raleigh, here on behalf of the town of Mooresville and the Mooresville Police Department. The district court in Iredale County erred in ordering the return of approximately $17,000 in currency to Jermaine Sanders because that currency had been adopted for forfeiture by a federal agency. And Mr. Sanders' position in this case has been that by filing a motion for the return of property in his criminal case, pending in the district court in Iredale County, he vested that court with interim jurisdiction. That is incorrect as a matter of law, and it's incorrect as a matter of fact. Now, to give the court kind of the, the broad outline of, of our position here today, it's incorrect as a matter of law for two reasons. North Carolina statute does not allow a state court interim jurisdiction over currency that's been seized by a local agency and then given to a federal agency for forfeiture. And number two, case law indicates that the filing of a motion for the return of property in a criminal case where in personam jurisdiction may exist is of no jurisdictional significance to the question of interim jurisdiction. So is there any way for a defendant to get relief in state court? I, I, I think the short answer to that question is no. I think in, I, I could go through all kinds of hypotheticals that, that we don't necessarily have, but, but to, to get to your Honor's question, had Mr. Sanders sued the town of Mooresville in state court and said, you have wrongfully taken my property contrary to whatever law he believes is appropriate, then perhaps he may have an argument that the state court could exercise interim jurisdiction there. Provided, of course, that that happens before the federal government adopts forfeiture. Because once that happens, that jurisdiction is exclusive to the federal court. Now, the purpose of interim jurisdiction a lot of times, I think, is to determine who owns the property. So, I mean, I guess if the state seizes something that I have, but they don't, they're not claiming they own it, they just need it for evidence in a trial, and they'll give it back to me later, is that really an interim, I mean, could I just say I want my property back now? I mean, would it be appropriate for me to sue them for interim, I mean, would that be an interim thing? I'm entitled to that property, or is that just something different? Well, I don't know if that necessarily would or wouldn't be an appropriate suit, but I think Your Honor's point is correct. And in the case that we've discussed, State v. Hill, City of Concord v. Robinson, those observations are brought out that when property is seized as evidence, you know, for use in a criminal proceeding where jurisdiction is in personam, that does not give the state court interim jurisdiction over that property for purposes of resolving who has the right. Because it's not like the state's saying we own the property now, so you're not really deciding the ownership, I guess. I mean. That's correct. That's right. But in a federal case, the federal government basically says we now own the property because that's what the forfeiture statute said. That's exactly right, and that is the purpose of the civil rights. I just want to make sure I understand the federal statute. So if I own a truck, somebody steals my truck and uses it in a drug crime, can the federal government take it? I think the answer to that question is no, but I am not a United States attorney. I would be hard-pressed. I mean, I guess if they did take it, my relief or my remedy would be to go to federal court and fight them over it. That's exactly right. That's really it. The issue is not whether or not they have it, whether they 
actually do own it or there's a defense. The issue is where, where the – that's your whole thing is where the deceit is. That's exactly right. And in this particular instance, the $17,000 in currency that we're talking about that the town of Mooresville, the police department, was in time ordered to turn over, that was adopted by the federal government. So there is, there is a proceeding in federal court. Prior to that, there's an administrative proceeding, and that is where Mr. Sanders can go for his relief. What's this whole idea that the town of Mooresville, did they say they took the property for safekeeping? What is that about? Was that, is that in the evidence, or I'm, I'm trying to remember if I read that somewhere. Why did they take the money? I guess, why did the town of Morris, why did the, right. town, why did the town take the money? That was, that was my understanding as well, that um, didn't Mooresville contend that it did, the Mooresville Police Department contend that it was taking the money because it wasn't safe to leave it in the car? I, I, I think that's correct. They encountered Mr. Sanders on November 16th, 2020. They found the $17,000 in currency in the rental vehicle, took it, and then, that, and then the following day, there was a report made to the Department of Homeland Security as far as what they found to see if that agency would have any interest in, in adopting an investigation or looking into it. And within several days, by November 23rd, they said that they did. But before that, this defendant filed his motion? Correct. So he filed a motion saying, I want my money back. Why didn't the town give it back to him? If they, if, they, if they weren't claiming they needed it for anything, they were just safe keep, keeping it for, I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out what happened. Well, from, from a timing perspective, the, the motion was filed before the adoption, but the motion wasn't heard until after the adoption. And so... Is there any evidence that he just called up town and Morris and said, hey, I, thank you for holding my money for safekeeping while I was being detained. Can I have my money back? And they said no when he filed the motion, or do we know anything? I don't, I don't believe there's anything in the record to that effect. Um, did, sorry. Did the town have any interest at all in those funds? And if so, what type of interest was it? My, my Prior to them going to the fence, put it away all the most, just what was the interest, if any, that the police department and the town had in those funds prior to them being adopted by the federal government? Well, I want, I want to make, let me know if I'm not responsive as far sure. as what you necessarily mean by interest. I think that, you know, in short order, based on their encounter with Mr. Sanders, he was charged with, I believe, a low-level drug offense because there was also marijuana in the vehicle. So part of the investigation was, was, well, what are we dealing with here? And I think in short order, there was some background run on Mr. Sanders that suggested he may be involved in drug trafficking or money laundering. And whether there was anything definitive at that point to bring charges, I'm not sure. But that was what was being investigated. As far as the, the, the interest piece of it, is that is that what you're... you're that, specifically under 1-75.81 regarding invoking in rem or quasi in rem, when the subject of the action is real or personal property in the state and defendant has or claims any lien or interest therein, or the relief demanded consists of wholly or or partially in excluding the defendant from any interest or lien therein. The defense, this subdivision shall apply whether any such defendant is, is known or unknown. Obviously that, that's with, with a civil filing, but that's basically to declare and determine what the interest of people are in a piece of property. But that's not what happened in this case. This is not no, but was there some type of interest that the town had? I don't think at that point there was any interest claimed at all. I think they were trying to investigate the circumstances, and part of that, including cooperation with federal agencies, was that referral to Homeland Security. 
but there was no effort by the town here to say we're going to try to bring some action under that statute or any other theory to say that we, we have an interest in this property and we want that judicially declared. That never happened. The only thing that happened was Mr. Sanders was charged criminally out of the same events, but not necessarily um, because of the money. That was separately referred to the Department of Homeland Security. It is a, I'm just trying to understand the, the interplay between state and federal. Is a and tell me if I'm wrong. Is a classic state interim case involved where two people are fighting over who owns what property? The, the, the I, I think that's accurate. So, so if, if you and I are fighting over that seventeen thousand dollars, no, it's mine. No, it's mine. And the federal government says, I don't care who it belongs to. This was involved in a, a federal drug thing, so it's ours anyway. It doesn't matter who it belongs to. They still have to wait for our state court to decide whether it's yours or mine. I, I, I don't think that's. I mean, if there's, I mean, that's what the case also. If it's if a state court is exercised in rim jurisdiction, it seems like even though the the resolution of the state court action probably would have no bearing on whether the federal government could come take it. I don't know if it would or not because it sounds like the federal statute says they can just come take it. Doesn't matter who has it if they believe it, it was involved. I mean, if you and I are fighting over a truck, and the truck was using a drug case, but we, neither one of us, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just trying to think how it works. It sounds like the law is the federal government's got to wait for, since the state is now doing an interim action, I guess, to decide, you know, who, who owns this property, they got to wait for that, then they can come take it. Is that, is that? Let, let me try to take a step back to be responsive. I think that you and I as private parties fighting over a truck maybe is, that may not be in rim. I'm trying to think about an in rim action. In well, well, well this, is, this is some examples, and the Robinson decision talks about that. Some states say that if a local agency seizes uh, funds, seizes currency, that before it gives it to the federal government for adoption, by state statute, it has to go through a process. So it goes to the state court. The state court then has in rim jurisdiction, and there are some determinations that would have to be made as far as whether it can be transferred, whether it's appropriate, things of that nature. In that particular instance where the state, by statute, has in-rem jurisdiction first, the federal government couldn't necessarily claim it. Now, if it's adopted before that, that may be a different story, but we don't have that in North Carolina. And the Hill decision talks about the fact that if a local agency seizes currency and that currency is then given to a federal agency that adopts it, that that, is, that, that exclusive in-rem jurisdiction lies in the federal court. And when, when Robinson discusses the idea that, you know, whether this interim jurisdiction may exist as a state law question, that's what it's referring to is what does the state statute say, if anything, about whether or not property is seized by local agents before it's given to the Fed? And just indulge me a little bit. Tell me a, tell me a situation in North Carolina where we do have interim jurisdiction cases. What, what, what factual scenario do we have that? We've got a couple statutes that speak to that. The Attorney General has can initiate an action in REM to recover property that's involved in racketeering. They can also initiate an action in REM to recover funds that are used in a variety of different vice-type offenses. But it's always the government going to get, like, property used in a crime. Well, that's right. But those are the limited statutory instances where there is interim jurisdiction given to the state. That not included within that list are circumstances where uh, a state agency simply seizes money that may be involved in drug trafficking, may be involved in money laundering, if it doesn't fit within the racket. So the federal bill. courts say that if a state has a statute that says that they can take the criminal stuff and, and just the criminal whatever, um, 
then the state gets first dibs if they if they've started first. If the if the if state law allows in, I understand. That's what I understand. Right. Okay. Because because in this case the, the state does have in personam jurisdiction over Mr. Sanders, but as Your Honor pointed out, that the purpose of that action is not to sort out the right the right to the funds; it's to sort out his guilt or innocence. Because there's a statute that basically says that the state can, in racketeering or whatever, can take basically ownership of the property; they can just take it. If it's used in racket, is that what those statutes say? Well, what the statute says is that the attorney general may move, can bring an action in rem to determine the, the right to the ownership of those particular funds or that particular property that's used in racketeering. I believe that's what that statute says. And the, and the Robinson, the city of Concord Robinson decision kind of provides a good discussion of what North Carolina law permits in the way of in rem jurisdiction and what, in this case, it's the To not. determine who owns it, are they trying to determine between us as to private parties or whether the state gets it? It, it would be a state action. It would be so state be action. The attorney general's like, would, would say it might belong to them, to the state, it would go to the well, state? Well, 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 I believe what that statute says is that they can bring an action in REM to forfeit the property that was involved in racketeering, similar to uh, federal okay. law that allows various federal agencies to bring an action against uh, money or currency or property that's uh, otherwise forfeitable under federal law. So is the racketeering statute basically a, a way to bypass giving the fines and forfeitures to the, to the school board, the local school board, um, just as in this, in, this, in this case and others like it, where the, where the uh, local police department gives the um, money or the vehicle or whatever to the, to the federal government, to Homeland Security, and then they can bypass the statute that, say, that says uh, that everything goes to the school board, or is it the Constitution? One of them. There's a Constitution provision yeah, that says the, fines the, the, go to the, to the school, school but this yeah. might not be a fine. I mean, but, but you're saying there's a statute that says that it, these things, the, 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 the state can take it if it's used in racketeering or whatever. Right. That's it's that. forfeited by whoever the owner was who used that property for a racketeering purpose. They just, they, they lose it. It says that the attorney general can bring an action in rem over that particular property. That's not, of course, an issue in this. But there's no crime. There's no statute that says that if, if the, the attorney general can bring it for, for money that was seized in a drug transaction or, or, or drug. That's what you're saying. There's no correct, correct, correct. Okay. Is, yeah. is it the town's assertion that the legality of the seizures are relevant? Yes. Okay. So you can just. It doesn't matter. Like if if my car is seized. It it is irrelevant to the question of in rem jurisdiction over the proceeds. Yeah, because if you steal my truck and then the federal government pulls you over and says, oh my gosh, we just see that truck was used in a drug thing, they'll take the truck and my remedy would be go to federal court and have it sorted out, not to go to state court. That would, even though my truck was illegally seized or whatever, it was taken, stolen from me, is what you're arguing. Okay, it doesn't matter how, it's just it's, the federal government has it and they're claiming it and nobody else is claiming it. Well, well, well that's right. I mean, I. I appreciate we're working through these hypotheticals, and we have to, of course, check but, all the boxes yeah, go ahead. That, that they would otherwise be permitted to take such action under federal statute. But if we if we assume that's the case, then yes, the the, the legality of the of the seizure, et cetera, all of that could be challenged in that proceeding. But whether or not the seizure is or isn't appropriate doesn't get to the question of interim jurisdiction. The question of interim jurisdiction is is totally separate from that. Right. And w when. This panel looks at this court's decision in Hill and Robinson. That really, those cases are really factually 
for all intents and purposes, indistinguishable from what we're dealing with here. Now, in both of those cases, you have individuals that were charged with state-level drug offenses. There was currency that was seized by the local agency. That currency was adopted by a federal agency. And there was a motion in the state criminal proceeding to have the money returned. And in both instances, the money was ordered returned. And on review by this court in Hill, and in a declaratory judgment action in federal court in Robinson, court said, both of those courts said there is no interim jurisdiction for the state court to do that within the criminal proceeding. And in the Hill decision, the issue was framed j just a touch different, which is in cooperating with a federal agency, in giving the money to a federal agency, it is the state uh, violating North Carolina General Statute 1511.1, sort of the housekeeping return to property statute. And this court said, no, it's not. And that any jurisdiction that the state court retains uh, over the criminal defendant is in personam, and it doesn't extend to interim jurisdiction over the funds adopted by the federal government. And then the court very specifically writes, once a federal agency has adopted a local seizure, a party may not attempt to thwart the forfeiture by collateral attack in our courts. For at that point, exclusive original jurisdiction is vested in the federal court by statute. And really, that is what we're dealing with here. But in those cases, were the motions filed after the, the uh, federal court had adopted the money? And that, would that make that factually distinguishable? Because in the, cause I think their argument is the fact that they filed the motion because clearly, if, 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 it's a, if it was the Attorney General in a racketeering place and the federal government took it, I would think that, that you could go into federal court and say, no, the state's already um, invoked uh, interim jurisdiction and get the money back. So, I mean, I think their argument is that I'm not saying they're right, but isn't that, is that a difference in this case from the other cases? So in those cases where the motions filed before the federal government took the, took the property? I, I, I don't recall. But... What, what I will say is that adoption relates back to the date of seizure. So the relevant date for this court's purposes is November 16th of 2020, because that's the date of seizure. And so when the federal court adopts it on the 23rd, it relates back to the 16th. The motion isn't filed until the 19th, but either way, at that point, the federal court, by the time the motion is ruled on, by the time the, the, the district court would claim interim jurisdiction, if you know, we're understanding their argument, the, the adoption has already taken place. So what you said earlier about suing the town um, rather than filing a motion in the cause in the criminal case, that wouldn't work either then, because if the, if the date of adoption, you know, relates back, there's no possible way that you could ever file anything to give the, um, the state in-rem jurisdiction. And that may be the case. But if that's true, that's a question for the General Assembly. And that's what Robinson talks about, is that different states have come up with uh, legislative protocols for how money seized by local authorities is turned over to the federal government. And I wasn't suggesting to Your Honor that that would have been a fail-safe way. No, 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 no. I, I understand. But, but, but I think, to, I think to, to, go, to run out your hypothetical, I think that may be true. But that would be an issue for the General Assembly. Because as we said, North Carolina law does not does not vest in REM jurisdiction in our state courts under these circumstances. And in the Robinson decision, and the Robinson decision does a very nice job of, of kind of going through and providing a good explanation of, of this procedure in general. It talks about federal interim jurisdiction, 
and that if the state does not, has not exercised interim jurisdiction, then the federal government can. It then refers to both the Hill decision and Winston-Salem, noting that the state does not exercise interim jurisdiction over currency just by seizing it, points out the different state statutes that I've referenced in North Carolina law could be different, but at least at this point it is not, and that all the criminal court in Robinson did was exercise in personam jurisdiction over the defendant and saying we want that the properties were returned, that at no point was there interim jurisdiction over the property. And that, that, is, that is exactly what's going on here. When the court looks at the November 24th order, you know, it's worth noting it's a criminal caption. Mooresville is not a, prop, not a party to the, to the action. The police department's not a party. They're not even mentioned. The direction is simply that the, the currency seized be returned. It doesn't even say who's supposed to return the money. So the only way we can look at that order is that the court is saying, I have in personam jurisdiction over Mr. Mr. Sanders in this criminal proceeding, and I'm going to make an order to return property. Precisely what happened in Hill, precisely what happened in Robinson. And what the courts have said is that that order, the, the effect to claim interim jurisdiction over the property, is of no effect once the federal government has adopted the forfeiture. I've got a, a general question regarding this federal adoption of funds and forfeitures. In states, because this case involved, uh, the only drug involved was marijuana, correct? I believe so, yes. What is the position of the federal government in taking adoptions of funds when they're linked to marijuana that's found in states where marijuana is legalized at the state level and or medicinal marijuana is legal at the state level? And, Judge Murphy, I'm really not prepared to be of any help to your question. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know what the federal government, I certainly can't keep up with all that, and I wouldn't want to guess or speculate on how they handle that. Well, if there, there is an unequal adoption practice, isn't that an equal protection issue? To the extent it is, it's not, it's not raised, it's not an issue in this court, or in this particular case. I mean, the only issue is, really, where does Mr. Sanders go for relief, and at least from the town and the department's perspective, can he use this end around? Can he can he run an end around against the feds and say, I just want to handle this quickly in my in my district court criminal matter because I perhaps for whatever reason he doesn't want to get involved with the matter in federal court? And the answer to that question is no. And that's what Hill and Robinson say. And that's really the narrow issue that's before this court. And I, I would add a couple other things here. There's been some suggestion um, by Mr. Sanders that. You know, money is fungible, and so it really doesn't matter whether it's the money returned or not. He, this town's got to pay him because that's what the order says. That, that exact same argument was brought up and discussed by the court in Robinson. It said that when you look at the order itself, this isn't some kind of a direction for the town to generally pay money or some kind of a finding that the town is liable. You know, the town's not even a party. In that case, you know, it was, it was the city of Concord. But what they say is that the order itself says that money has to go back because it was wrongfully taken. That's the same thing that this order says. And so what the Robinson Court says is, we don't look at that and say, well, that's just fungible money. We look at that and say, did that court have interim jurisdiction over the money? And because the answer to the question is no, there's no obligation for the town to pay that. Same principle would apply here. And, and I think we've already, by and large, touched on this, but the Robinson Court also talks about the idea that jurisdiction over forfeitures uh, in the context of, of drug-related crimes in North Carolina is in persona. If you have a circumstance where an individual is convicted of a drug offense, there's in personam jurisdiction for forfeiture subsequent to the conviction. 
certainly that's not what's going on in this case, but that is where jurisdiction lies. And the Robinson Court talks about that perhaps a state court, uh, and I think they're right, they, they could say that before a federal forfeiture is adopted, they could decide to assert interim, interim jurisdiction, whether or not that would be appropriate as a question of state or federal law. That's, that's the middle district writing. And we would look at, and that's, that's referenced in some, of their, in some of their materials as you get to the other relief section of the Robinson order. But when you look at that, there, there's at least three problems. Of course, number one, state law doesn't confer interim jurisdiction. That would be a decision for this court, uh, not necessarily the federal court. Number two, this order, record page seven, does not expressly confer interim jurisdiction over the funds. It doesn't mention that in any way, shape, or form. And number three, the key wording there is before, which means a state court taking interim jurisdiction before uh, a, f a federal adoption takes place. Didn't happen in this, in this instance. Um, there's let, let me ask one, one question regarding the adoption, um, and maybe this is just something I'll need to look at back at the statutes, but is it statutory that the adoption by a federal agency or federal law enforcement provides interim jurisdiction without any type of court filing in the federal courts? The, 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 because they just adopt it and they don't file a complaint about the money for three months down the road. What, what's the triggering mechanism just like you've argued that this isn't enough to be the triggering mechanism for interim jurisdiction in North Carolina, under the, the federal statutes and federal procedure, what is that triggering mechanism under the, the statute? And, and, Judge Murphy, the, the Winston-Salem decision that's, that's cited in the briefing, it's a Fourth Circuit decision, that, that references that. And I, I believe that, I, I don't want to misquote or miscite a statute, but I believe that fleshes out the idea that that the adoption goes back to the date of the seizure and that the, the action itself uh, is, is in rem in nature when pursued by the federal government. I see I'm, I'm cutting into my rebuttal yeah, time. Yeah, so you, if you want to wrap up real quick, yes, yes, fine. Okay, you, you got five minutes when you come back. Thank you. We're here from the Apple Uh, good afternoon, judges. Maria Perry on behalf of Jermaine Sanders in this matter. It's an honor to be here before you all and um, hope this argument pleases the court. The straightforward issue um, in this matter is, did Sanders' November 19th motion for return of property that the police seized for no law enforcement purpose, just for safekeeping, did that invoke interim jurisdiction in the court? Let me ask you a question. Is an interim proceeding civil in nature? Yes, because it solely involves property. Was the motion made in this criminal action? It was, Your Honor. So if, if I get charged with a speeding ticket by the state of North Carolina, can I counterclaim to say that they owe me $50,000 or something? I mean, can I, I can't bring a civil I mean, don't I have to file a separate action? I mean, why, why, would, not, why would not your client, or why, could, why, why would not require to file a separate in-room proceeding or something? Why can you do it in a criminal action if it's civil in nature? Because there is no requirement for that, Your Honor. And what's been going on in this case is that the town and its police, they've been arguing misconstructions of the law. 
there is no requirement um, in our statutes, as I believe was acknowledged, there is no requirement that where the police unlawfully seize someone's property for no good reason and refuse to give it back, that that person can't, in a related criminal case where the judge already has the facts, already has the people involved in front of him or her, that that judge cannot say, as a matter of their inherent power, I'm going to give this unlawfully seized property back that was taken for no law enforcement purpose. There's nothing there that says that, Your Honor. And in fact, we know that um, the trial courts, as well as our appellate courts, have inherent power um, to do um, or to provide answers to problem in the interest of administering justice. And so in this case, since Sanders was already going to court for a criminal matter that was unrelated to the taking of his property, it was a convenient use of um, court resources, and it was convenient since, again, that judge already had the parties and the facts before her, and she could simply make that determination um, over that specific property. So um, I believe that was why trial counsel chose to do um, a motion in that criminal case. Um, But just to sort of um, go through what are the laws that apply, Your Honors? Um, The big question here is the interim interim jurisdiction question, obviously. So to determine who has superior interim jurisdiction, we don't look to federal law. We have to look at what the U.S. Supreme Court has said in over 100 years of authority they've issued on this topic. The Supreme Court has said in cases like uh, 1922's Klein versus Byrd and 1935's Penn General, they've said that there are three important things we have to look to. First, which court was the first in time to obtain jurisdiction over the property, be it state or federal? Second, it says um, the first course is in rim jurisdiction, once it's obtained, that jurisdiction cannot be terminated by an attempt to remove that property from that first court's jurisdiction. And then third, the cases make clear, especially Klein, that in the event um, there is a dispute between a state court and a federal court, there is no federal supremacy or federal superiority as regards in rim jurisdiction over property. There is no supremacy. And there is a quote um, that was included in uh, the appellee's brief at page 21 from Klein, where it specifically says that. So um, there is this idea that there is some supremacy because the federal government is the feds and we're the lowly state court. That's not true. And all of the facts in the law bear that out. The other thing that is worth pointing out is that the only time the Penn General Rules, and I collectively refer to all of those Supreme Court cases as the Penn General Rule, just for the sake of brevity, those rules only um, fail to apply if we are dealing with one court having impersonam jurisdiction and the other having in rem. There's no conflict when there's in rem on one side and impersonam on the other. These cases apply, though, when there are conflicts. Well, it seems like the conflict occurs is because which sovereign gets to keep it is his first. Well, let, oh, let, let me ask you a question then. Here it seems like the state court action would be, or at least the motion is to determine whether the town gets it or the defendant in this case gets it. Isn't that right? Would that be correct? Is that what the motion was about, whether the town got it or whether the defendant, or whether the defendant got it, whether the town would get it or whether the defendant get it? Is that, am I 
No, it wasn't about whether the town would get it because the town never had a right to it. The police didn't take it for some law enforcement so purpose. So what was the motion was for? Evidence. The motion was for what? Whether or not Sanders would get it returned to him since there was no basis to ever take it. And because I believe one of the judges asked a question about, well, did Sanders simply ask for it back before filing his motion? And he did. And that is in, I believe, the judge's February and April orders where she goes through some of the facts. He did ask for it back through his attorney, but um, he was ignored. And that's why he had to file the motion. So the motion simply says, my property was unlawfully taken. Um, there was no reason to take the property. The police didn't believe it was connected to a crime. They didn't take it because it was connected to a crime. Please just give me my property back. That was it. But it, it seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, why I'm wrong, when you have these disputes, it's typically some bad person's property has been taken, and it's really a fight between the state and the federal court who gets it. Whoever gets it first gets to keep it. But here it seems like the state or the town of Morseville, whatever, doesn't care. They don't want it. If, so even if it went back to Mr. Sanders, the federal government could still reach down and grab it because they, they think it was involved in a, in, a, in, a, in a drug case. There's not really a fight between the a, a state or the town and the federal government because the town doesn't care. They, that, that's why they gave it to the federal government. So why, why, is, why, why is that principle about who, who exercised first really relevant here? Because even if we did say this needs to go back to the, the trial court, I mean, the town doesn't, care, doesn't seem to care. I mean, they're not claiming they, they own it. It's, it's not a fight about who gets to keep it between these sovereigns. Because if it gets returned to Mr. Sanders, they can just reach down and get it anyway, it seems like, under this federal statute. Yeah, so the reason there is a fight, Your Honor, because if it was that simple, they wouldn't have appealed. You know, they right. just would have kept going with how things were. Oh, we don't have to obey anything right. the state says. We have no dog in this fight. Whether he gets it or not, we don't care. But they care because there's a financial incentive on the back end when it comes to forfeiting someone's property under federal law, which makes federal law attractive, whereas our federal or whereas our state civil forfeiture law isn't attractive. So the federal... So if, so if the federal, uh, under federal law, if the federal government gets to keep it, there's a kickback to the state is what yes, you're Yes, there is up to 80% that goes back, not to the state. It's not about North Carolina. It goes back to the specific law enforcement agency that was involved in the seizure. They can get back up to 80% of that cash. And the government, the federal government gets the other 20. In North Carolina, although we also allow for civil forfeiture, there isn't that financial incentive because, if, as the as you all said, you know the money would go to as a forfeiture. It would be directed to um, the public schools for the upkeep of our, or it would be directed to the school boards for the upkeep of our. But public if they had returned system. it to Mr. Sanders, and then the government had grabbed it, federal government had grabbed it, then there's no sharing. If they, if they had grabbed it directly from Mr. Sanders, or do you, or do you well, know? Well, there wouldn't have been a basis to take it, because that's the other thing that's getting misconstrued in this case. Just like our state forfeiture law, the federal forfeiture law provides that adoptions are not supposed to happen of property that was unlawfully seized. That's in there. And I've included all of the authority um, relating to that in um, both the record on appeal, um, the response to the town's petition for reassert, as well as the appellee's brief. There is a lawfulness requirement. So the government does not intend the federal forfeiture statutes to apply in cases where the police are just taking money that has nothing to do with anything. But the federal forfeiture statutes, as even the town's amica says, is intended to fight organized crime by uh, depriving organized crime participants of 
property that they obtain by engaging in those organized crimes. But isn't that an argument to make in federal court? Well, that's the thing. Because of the uniqueness of this situation, we were forced, and we are making those arguments in federal court because there is this challenge over in-room jurisdiction. We are here fighting this appeal, and then we also have to simultaneously fight the case in federal court because depending on how this court rules on the in-room ju jurisdiction argument, that could negatively affect Mr. Sanders' interest in the property in federal court. So, you know, when you don't abide by the Penn general rules, you create these unsavory situations where somebody is fighting over property in two different jurisdictions. Given the facts surrounding um, whether an adoption can happen if it's unlawfully seized, don't we have authority to say an adoption, as contemplated by federal law, never actually occurred? There's just something given over to another law enforcement agency? I'm sorry, could you, could that you ask me that? We would have the authority to determine, as a matter of law, based on the facts, whether an adoption, as that term's used by federal law enforcement, actually ever occurred, or would we not? As the North Carolina State Court, you're asking? Right. When our, yeah. our courts get to determine, hey, this event did not happen, whether you call it a theft, whether you call it an adoption, whether you call it um, a gift, whatever you call it, it doesn't meet the definition of this. So there's never been an actual adoption. Is that within the authority of the state courts to determine vis-a-vis -vis whether we had jurisdiction or the timing of jurisdiction being evoked? Yeah, so I think to answer that question, I have to also address the fact that the town and their argument today is wrong and their argument that um, the adoption dates back to the forfeiture. The law is clear that the adoption, such that jurisdiction attaches, is when the property actually comes under the control of federal authorities. And the town's own amicus admits that as well in their brief. Now, so I don't know why the town is saying otherwise, but both we, Sanders, and the town's amicus all say that. And that's true from the case law that has also been offered. So that's number one. Number two, insofar as a trial court would be able to say, hey, I'm ruling as a matter of law that this adoption did not happen into X date, I don't think that there's authority for a trial court to do that. And we're not asking the trial court to do that. We are going off of the same thing that these folks have said all along. Uh, Sanders filed his motion on 11-19. We transferred the property on 11-23. And at that point, that's when the trial court's jurisdiction cut off. And we know that's true because in the record at page 11, Detective Elliott, upon getting um, the trial court's 11-24 order, his response was, well, we don't have the property. Yesterday, we gave it over to the Fed, so uh, it is no longer under the jurisdiction of Iredell County or states of this court. Let me, well, let if me, there was never. I'm gonna, uh, well, let me ask you a quick question. Uh, under, so let's, under the um, M-Rims North Carolina statute, if you don't know anything about it, it's fine, um, where the Attorney General goes takes racketeering property, do they typically go grab it and then file some kind of, then some interim thing is done? Do they go grab it first? Is that typically what happens, or do you know? 
Yeah, so under Chapter 75D, what happens is it's law enforcement. It's not the AG's office. The AG is the one empowered to prosecute, but they usually receive the property from law enforcement. So say, for example, in this case, the Mooresville police could have said, you know what, we're going to keep this in state so that we can so under his our theory that we're the, going to. So under his theory that it relates back, then there would never be an interim right. in North Carolina because it's always seized before any court in North Carolina, even under the proper statutes, exercises interim jurisdiction because it's already been seized. And if it relates back in a federal thing, then there would never be a state. Exactly. Okay. That's, 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 that, I understand that point. Okay. And so with, the, with our in-state process, though, the point is our General Assembly, and they say this in Chapter 75D, the intent is to benefit our state as a result of folks carrying on criminal enterprises that harm the legal economy. So that's a different consideration than the federal statutes, which, of course, don't care, you know, anything about North Carolina and what we're trying to benefit. It just cares about, well, the government gets its 20 and the law enforcement agency that help gets its 80, and that's that. Uh, but there's nothing insofar as going back to the issue of relating back. There's nothing that says that. That's, that's just totally inaccurate. And what I'd also like to address um, today, Your Honors, is the fact that um, – on this issue of the Towns' argument that Sanders' motion invoked in personam jurisdiction and the four cases they cite, those cases are clearly distinguishable from Sanders' case. And in the briefing from Sanders uh, to this court, we go through and we analyze those cases. One, those cases show three big things. One, there was a lawful search and seizure of property pursuant to either a warrant, probable cause, or consent. Two, there was the uh, seizure of that property as evidence relating to the crimes that the defendant was later charged with. It wasn't just taken for safekeeping. And then three, we have defendants who specifically made motions for return of their property based upon criminal statutes. Well, let, let me now, ask you about that. With Hill, um Looking back at the record in Hill, the motion for return of funds makes no mention of any of the criminal statutes. I don't see any way to distinguish the motion in Hill from the motion brought before the trial court at record page five of our, our case. Um, they, they basically seem to be following the same approach, same language close to it in some parts. Because in Hill, there, there's no mention whatsoever regarding criminal statutes or criminal forfeiture. Um, it, it's basically the same language that, that we have in Sanders' motion. Um, so to, the ex to that extent, are we not bound by Hill to say, regardless of how you can invoke in-rim jurisdiction, if you can, at a minimum, the motion in Hill didn't do it and a motion close to it, which is what Sanders looks like to me, can't do it either. So there are two parts to uh, that question, Your Honor. First, again, Hill still has the same uh, criminal context, i.e., the property was seized pursuant to a lawful search and seizure and as evidence related to a crime. And so far as um, the viewing of that motion, the trial court, uh, it, it says something about Section 90-112 being exclusive 
um, such that law enforcement shouldn't have transferred Hills's property to federal law enforcement authorities. So the trial court did, um, in its ruling, premise that motion or paint that motion as falling under a criminal statute. And because the court did that, the federal court, or not the federal court, our court in Hill, the Court of Appeals, looked at it as, oh, well, he based his ruling on 90-112, an ex ex exclusivity that would prohibit uh, the federal government from getting this money because the police never should have took it. And so that's what makes that also an impersonal motion because of that invocation of 90-112. We don't have that here in Sanders. Well, that's just because other. of the orders, right? But we're worried about the, I think you're, your argument in your best case is filing the motion gave the trial court here interim jurisdiction. Yes, Your Honor. Regardless of the order that comes later after a hearing, can that change the impact of the earlier filing to invoke that, that interim jurisdiction, depending on how it was argued at the hearing later, how the trial court drafted its order? Because here, if that's the case, if that's what's going to invoke jurisdiction is the order or the hearing, then that's after the date of adoption here, and the feds have interim first in time under PIN. Well, no, right? I'm not saying that the motion would change in character. All I'm saying that is to distinguish Sanders' case from Hill, we have to keep in mind that in Hill, the court based its decision on 90-112. So although um, there is a lack of evidence of what basis Hill was proceeding under the defendant. We know from the court's order that apparently there was some type of criminal motion or criminal statutes involved from the trial court's ruling. So that was all I was saying to that. And so far as whether in-rim jurisdiction existed and how it can be terminated, clearly, you know, had after Sanders filed his motion on 1119, had he went to court on 1124 and argued a criminal statute or had the judge interpreted that her authority arose from a criminal statute, if there was any kind of hint of someone having um, invoked a criminal statute, this would be different, but we don't have that. What we have uh, in our perspective is a motion that clearly sounds in the Constitution. And why do I say that? Because the criminal statutes, 15-11.1, 90-112, all of those deal with the handling of evidence and they deal with lawful seizures. In fact, 15-11.1 talks about handling of evidence and you know when it can be returned to a defendant or when you can apply to the DA to get it back. But this wasn't evidence, and no one says that Sanders' property was ever evidence. So because we're not dealing with evidence, we know that we're not dealing with a criminal statute. And because we're not dealing with a criminal statute, we know we're not dealing with an impersonal motion because it's the criminal element of a motion for return when it's based on a criminal statute that turns it in personam because our criminal statutes only operate in personam. And then there is um, an additional point I would like to make to your honors in my remaining time. Um, Actually, I'm, I may have covered <laughs> that point. And so I was talking about um, distinguishing all the four cases um, that have been offered by the town. And one other big thing to keep in mind is that 
when we really analyze those cases and look at what was the issue before those courts and why they ruled the way we ruled, um, I think it's clear that Sanders' case is clearly not um, similar to those cases. And in particular, City of Concord, um, the federal middle district case that was decided in 2012, the judge there, she was very honest. She said, you know, hey, I have a um, motion or I have a claim for declaratory judgment that has been brought before me. And the police have also asked me to opine whether or not their conduct in transferring the defendant's property was correct. I can't opine on that. That is a matter of state law. In addition, the court said, when it comes to how do we construe a defendant's motion for return of property, that's a matter of state law. I can't exceed my bounds as a federal authority and tell a state court how it has to construe a motion that was filed under its state laws or in its state courts. And that's the same thing that the Klein court said, the Supreme Court's 1922 Klein opinion, which is, again, there's a long site at page 21 of the, I believe it's the response to the petition for writ of cert, but it says the same thing. And I would like to... Um, And I would like to quote that case because I think that it's very uh, relevant to what we're doing here today, but I don't have it in front of me. But on page 21, that quote is there where the Supreme Court also agrees almost 100 years before the federal judge that, hey, it is a matter of state law what this motion did. And depending on what that motion did is going to determine, pursuant to the Penn General Rules, who has superior jurisdiction because City of Concord also acknowledges Penn General um, and those requirements. And in fact, all of the advocates before this court acknowledge the applicability of the Penn General Rules, but for some reason they still go back to, well, even though Penn General is out there and it says what it says, federal statutory law controls because the feds were given this property on 1123. You, you can't do that. The law is the law, and if it's followed, then we believe that um, the court should uphold the trial court in this matter and affirm not only the order requiring Sanders' as mere found personal property to be returned, but also the contempt orders. Because by civil contempt, that is the only way that a court can give effect to its orders. Civil contempt is not. Intended to well, how does the town of Morrisville have the to be held in civil contempt? You have to have the present ability to comply with the court's order. How does the town of How does the town of Morrisville have the ability to comply with if they don't have the property? They don't have the property in their possession at this point. Yes, yeah, so they have the ability to comply, and this was answered by the trial court as well because they have the funds. Mooresville never said, you know what, we don't have the ability to comply because not only do we not have the property, we don't have it in our bank account. Their thing was just, well, somebody else has it and we can't comply, so you know we're not going to pay it out of our funds. Why should we be out of approximately seventeen thousand dollars? We shouldn't be out. He should have to pursue it somewhere else. But it's in but rim. the other. But it's in rim, so it's 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 specific property. It's not a money judgment it's not it's an in-rim thing that right. you're you're to, to win your first argument you got to say they're entitled to this pile of money right here i would think i mean if it's in rim so if that well, pile of money is no longer there you're gonna you're gonna have to ask the town of morrisville to appropriate other money to turn over which would be not really an in-rim it doesn't seem in-rim to me but i'm, I'm just you got to have the present ability but you're saying Go yeah, ahead. so so there's actually two ways we can answer your inquiry your honor number one if the money never left Mooresville because as a matter of uh, Supreme Court authority, they couldn't 
take the property out. They transfer their own $16,761. Sanders is never left. So that's the way I look at it for purposes of NREM. You can't, you know, take the property out of the jurisdiction and say, oh, we beat your jurisdiction now. I mean, the Supreme Court says you can't do that. But the second way we can answer that inquiry is even if the trial court didn't have in-room jurisdiction over the property because of the 1123 uh, transfer, well, pursuant to this court's president and state versus king, you can still give back that which you are obligated to give back. And state versus king is important because in that case, it was a similar situation. That you had a defendant who, um, well, it, it was similar in some ways. It wasn't similar in that there was an unlawful search and seizure of, state, of property for safekeeping. It was similar in that you had a defendant who, um, pursuant to a lawful search and seizure, had property approximately $17,000 seized by the police. She was later charged with drug crimes as well in connection with obtaining that money. And then there was a plea agreement entered between her and the state, whereby the state said, yeah, we'll give you your, you know, approximately $17,000 back, no problem. When the time came for the um, state to turn that money over to the defendant, it couldn't because the police told them, oh, we don't have the money to give back. We gave it to the feds, and that was like a year ago, so we forfeited it, and we shared in the money, and it's just gone. So the state tells the defendant, oh, too bad. You know, we don't have the money to give back, so you're just out of gas. The defendant appealed, and this court said, no, she's not out of gas. You know, you were not required to give back money as a result of damages and substitution for a loss, you were required to give back money as an obligation. And that obligation remains whether the specific money you took is available or not. You have to give it back. And that's the same thing here insofar as the fact that the town no longer has the money is irrelevant. If we're looking at it as an impersonal matter, they have the ability to give it back using different money because money is fungible and it's not unique and it can be given over in a different amount. Are you referring to State v. King? Yes, Your Honor, State v. King. Well, this court's opinion in 2012. Right. In King, though, weren't we actually dealing with a specific performance question rather than a jurisdictional question? Correct. It was a specific performance, and the only reason it's relevant here is because the court answered the problem of when we don't have this money, do we still have to give it back? So when it's an obligation, you do have to give it back. Now, maybe if it was damages awarded, you know, in substitution for a loss, maybe it might be a different answer. Let me ask you a question um, that popped to mind a few minutes ago when you're talking about Penn General. In looking at Penn General, it came out in 1935. I don't have a complete statutory history in front of me right now, but 28 U.S.C., 1355, the one relied on by the amicus and, and a little bit by the appellant, about the exclusive of the courts of the states, was not passed until its earliest version appears to be 1948. I'm sorry, I couldn't. It appears to be 1948 when 28 U.S.C. Uh, 1355 was passed. So we've got at least about 12, 13 years after Penn General comes out. Could, is Penn General and its race to the courthouse in rim function at all abrogated by this statute? 
It isn't, Your Honor, because those federal rules and laws apply if the federal government was the first to have jurisdiction. Now, just like we have laws and rules regarding handling of property, if we are the first to obtain jurisdiction over that property, then we get to say, you know, and this is the rule, it's exclusive, it's this, it's that. So there is nothing that I've come across in federal authority that abrogates Penn, and there's nothing that's been offered by the appellant or its amicus to say that Penn has been abrogated. We just have everyone agreeing that Penn applies, or Penn is existing law, but they just disagree that it applies because supposedly federal laws take precedence. My last question on the contempt thing. The order, I guess, that was the, that the town of Morrisville was held in contempt was on page 7 where the, where the uh, district court judge ordered that the money be returned to, to Mr. Sanders. Is that correct? That was the order that, that, that was violated, and there was a show cause on that. Yes, Your Honor, that 1124 order. That so, was the subject of the contempt proceeding. So how is it that the town of Morrisville can be held in contempt on an order that they're not even a party for? What, what jurisdiction did the court have to enter an order against the town? I mean, what, why was the town of Morrisville compelled to abide by this order if they're not a party? Yeah, Your Honor, that uh, question is also answered by this court in Trotter versus Debnam, which is a 1975 case, and that's mentioned um, in our response to the petition for writ of cert at pages 12 through 13. Okay. But essentially what Trotter says is that you don't have to be a named party to be held um, in contempt for violation of the order so long as you had notice either active or, or either actual or constructive of the court order and so long as there was active concert between the non-party contender and the named party. And in this case, this is what we had. We had the district attorney's office who was in contact with um, the police at all steps relating to um, Sanders's motion, which okay. the trial court found. And so, you know, they're giving them checks saying, hey, show this to the court. Okay. We did. So, so that's how a non-party. Um, Thank you. And there's unchallenged findings of fact to all of those details, correct? I'm sorry? There's unchallenged findings of fact yes. to all those details? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Jim. You have five minutes. Rebuttal. May it please the court, two points I really want to touch on in rebuttal. I took notes here, so I may not have got it down exactly right, but I believe I heard counsel say something to the effect of that in a related criminal case, a trial court can give property back under its inherent power. If that property is subject to the interim jurisdiction of a federal court, that's not true. That's what Hill says. That's what Robinson says. And I think Judge Murphy kind of alluded to this in his questioning, which is the, the adoption takes place on the 23rd. The motion is filed before the adoption, but the court doesn't actually hear the motion to return the property until after the adoption. And so even if we accept that this, the court had interim jurisdiction, which it did not, it's still, it's still second in time to the adoption. And in many ways, that is the fundamental problem with their position here. Because if we accept, if this court accepts what they're saying, then any time somebody is in a situation where law enforcement is holding their property, for whatever, for whether, it's, whether it's lawful, whether it's otherwise, 
All they have to do is say, well, where do I have an open file that I can just do this quick before the federal government comes in and initiates and adopts the investigation? And so long as I can just get to a courthouse first and file something before an adoption, then I can handle this in state court and the feds just have to sit back and wait. That is, that is not the law. Hill talks about that. Robinson talks about that. The real grievance that Mr. Sanders has here, and I think it's clear from, from counsel's advocacy today, is with North Carolina statute. That the General Assembly could do something to say that when local agencies seize funds, there's some kind of a protocol that has to go in place before adoption. Other states do that. Robinson talks about that. That is his grievance. Clearly he has genuine frustration with the fact that the authorities took this cash from him and that they didn't give it back when he asked. I don't think anybody holds that against him. But that is a legislative prerogative. The federal government's rights that are dictated by Congress says they can adopt that currency. And what Hill says is our state agencies, in cooperating with the federal government, can turn that money over. And when we turn that money over, that's the federal government's investigation. That's their forfeiture. And interim jurisdiction over that property is in federal court, not in the state court. Well, what are they investigating? Because in this case, didn't the, didn't the uh, DA take a dismissal? I'm talking about, that's true, that's true. My reference to investigation is just the initial encounter. I mean, remember here, what they have is they encounter an individual at a hotel, he flees from police, they find a rental car, they find a controlled substance, they find $17,000 in cash, and in short order determine that this individual has a fairly lengthy criminal history out of state with drug trafficking and, and money-related charges. And if I'm misstating any of that, I'm not trying to cast Mr. Sanders in a negative light. I just know he had some relevant criminal history. And so that's what prompted the town to say, well, what, are, what have we encountered here? What are we dealing with? And again, the very next day, they're in contact with Homeland Security. And so, you know, and Hill says that can be done. Our state agencies can do that, and then they can give that forfeiture, or that forfeiture can then later be adopted by the federal government, and that's where jurisdiction But he can go to the federal court and argue that they wasn't involved in drugs or whatever, so... Correct. And, it's a, and I guess the, the federal government's burden to show it was, I guess. Correct. That's absolutely right. And I, and I think even before that, and I acknowledge this is probably beyond the scope of the issue, I think there's an administrative proceeding that he can go through before to submit materials explaining where the money comes from and why it shouldn't be subject to forfeiture. If, if that's not true, I certainly stand corrected since I don't think it's relevant to the issue. But he is not without recourse here. It's just his recourse is in that particular arena with the entity that has the property, not with the town of Mooresville that's simply cooperating with federal authorities. Uh, if the panel doesn't have any more questions, we'd respectfully ask that the district court orders in this case, all the orders, the initial order directing the return of funds and the subsequent show cause of contempt orders be reversed and vacated. Thank you both for your excellent you. arguments. Those are great. Thank you so much. This is a very fascinating case. Ready to adjourn?
This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is now adjourned.